Welcome to Season 5 of Purposeful Empathy, a show dedicated to amplifying the voices of people from around the globe who understand that the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. Today's episode was brought to you by Grand Huron International, an on-demand coaching provider for individuals and companies. Thanks for watching the show. Enjoy. Welcome to a new episode of Purposeful Empathy. Today I'm joined by Charles Onu, who is the CEO of Ubenwa Health, a startup applying AI for reliable, low-cost diagnosis of perinatal asphyxia. Charles Onu is interested in how technology can address difficult problems in medicine. He's also a PhD candidate at McGill and the Quebec AI Institute, otherwise known as Mila where his research broadly focuses on developing novel applications of AI in medicine. It's great to have you on the show, Charles. Thank you, Anita. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I've known you for a number of years. I'm trying to do the math. I think it's probably seven years already since we met. Yeah. Um, yeah, Okay. And you came to... Six, I think six plus. Six plus. Okay. So just, I must've been pregnant with Annika when we met. Is that right? Okay. Exactly. So um, under the auspices of the Jean Sauvé Foundation's leadership program, you were uh, a fellow uh, from Nigeria and you came to Canada to really focus on your venture to solve this um, important uh, medical problem. So can you tell us a little bit about your backstory and then what led you to to Canada and what your your goal at the time was? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, So so I'll just start by explaining what we're doing today and then walk back to how did I come to this? Uh, Sure. So, so, so first, uh, you know, uh, Ubenwa, um, our social venture is focused on, on developing low-cost diagnostic tools for birth asphyxia. Uh, birth asphyxia is when the baby is unable to um, establish spontaneous breathing after birth. And this will be caused by myriads of factors. But the important thing is, it, it leads, this is top, one of the top three causes of newborn mortality today. It causes uh, over 2 million deaths and disabilities every year. And a lot of this is happening in developing countries, um, and and we find that most of the uh, most of the cases are just due to late detection of the condition. So we are really focused on how can we leverage modern technologies to develop something that's more accessible, cheaper, faster, that you know birth attendants, midwives can use even without the presence of fancy medical equipment to screen babies quickly and get them to have the care they need. Um, so how did I come to work on, on Benoit? Uh, it's a really long story, and I'll, I'll, I'll cut some parts of it. i just like, give the, the broad strokes of it. But, but I guess it starts from, from growing up in Nigeria and, and, and just easily seeing around me that I was privileged. My family wasn't wealthy, but we were in the middle class. And we could see that more than half of the country was, was struggling to survive. In many aspects, because I could see that, I could see that our, our our economy, our infrastructure, many things were not just working well. But I'll say the thing that struck me the most was the problems in healthcare. Like for some reason, as a child, I just saw that I just thought that you know, if we couldn't provide something as basic as healthcare to people, then then people don't even have the life to struggle and to hustle and and you know make themselves uh, the daily bread. And so for me, healthcare became like one thing that was really important uh, growing up. And I remember telling everybody I was going to be a doctor. 
my parents, friends, family, everybody. But when it came time to choose to study what to study in the university, um, because in Nigeria you go straight to medical school if you, you don't do a first degree first. Uh, when it came to that time, I realized I didn't actually want to study medicine because <laughs> I loved math so much. And I couldn't imagine a life without doing mathematics. <laughs> I, I thought it was actually a hard choice, very difficult one, because I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be able to contribute to helping people, saving lives, and so on. But, but then I, I had come so much in love with math and physics that I, I was hard to, to not be able to do those things going forward. And so fortunately, with the help of friends, family, the cousins who were already in university, I was able to realize that doing engineering, following the theme that I really um, you know, cared about um, scientifically, um, what didn't necessarily mean that I couldn't impact medicine. And so I ended up going to study engineering. And so for me, studying engineering was never really about like, you know, doing engineering, engineering, but using that to find how we can solve problems in society and solve problems that, that were around me, especially in healthcare. And, and, so, and so that led me in, through volunteering with NGOs while I was in the university and after university, um, and, and just like really trying to get it, 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 it pulsed on what are the problems, what are the ways we could, we could approach them based on what we know from engineering and science. And, and so, you know, and, I'm skipping many steps, but that really led me to working on this problem of how can we reduce infant mortality uh, using technology, using mobile technology, AI, and, and, and the like today. Um, and so that's the, that's the, the storyline. So uh, two little follow-up questions. I want to know, you know, was what do you attribute your empathy to, given that you really wanted to help people in healthcare, right? So you wanted to be a doctor because you wanted to heal people. And then you realized you didn't want to be a doctor, but you now want to leverage technology to help people. What was it already from the very beginning that motivated you to want to like leverage your empathy for others? That's the first follow-up. The second one, I have completely forgotten. It'll come back to me as you're answering the first question. Okay. That's hilarious. I mean, it's easier for me to, because if you gave me two questions, I will forget the <laughs> The second one by the time I'm done with the first one. Great. Okay. <laughs> it is so Friday fun. afternoon for everyone as we're taping this. <laughs> yeah, but totally. Um, you know, on the on the question of 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 you know why did I you know decide that I, I should use my skill or try to uh, try to solve the problems around me? I think it really came down to that feeling that I was just lucky. You know, I was lucky to be born to parents who were not educated, but who had, you know, worked hard enough and developed enough means to send me to school and to provide basic things for me to, like many of my friends will go to, from school to their parents' shop to go and sell things and they have no time to study. But I, my, my parents made sure that, you know, we go from school to home, we could do assignments and things like that. So, so I, I realized I had many privileges that we just share luck. You know, I did not make any choice. I did not make any effort to, to, to earn those, those privileges. And so for me, it just really felt like a responsibility I had to the others around me uh, to give back, to, to try to use the short time we have here on Earth to, to help, you know, make others, you know, close to or better than the, the, where we find our own selves. And, yeah. um, 
I guess it was just as simple as that. Yeah, sense of responsibility. Um, I hear you on that. The second question that I wanted to ask was, you know, uh, healthcare is so broad and you're talking about something very, very specific. I mean, it's you mentioned the stats, still 2 million people is a lot. But how did you come to focus on that particular medical issue? Yeah, so I ended up focusing on, on uh, babies by, you know, may happen stands out day. Uh, I mentioned earlier that, you know, after making this choice to study engineering, um, I still wanted to make sure I stayed co- connected with the community, with social um, uh, work and so on. And so I was volunteering with NGOs uh, throughout my stay in the university and even after the university uh, with, with, with colleagues uh, as well. And it was during this time that, you know, we had projects in environment, in energy, in, in healthcare. It was during this time that I came across this problem of, of birth asphyxia that I'm working on today. Um, you know, in, in some projects with nurses and midwives, and and I guess of the ones that you know that uh, that we encountered, this was one that I felt I had some you know um, some scientific edge coming into, and I, I could see a way to, to tackle this problem from my own previous work. Because in my previous work in my undergrad, I had studied about how we can um, the information in the newborn cry. So we're, we're, I was learning about you know, the fact that the baby's cry is just this sign that we use to say at birth if the baby is alive or not. But that cry at birth is so much more informative than we actually know. And the cry goes on to tell us things about the health of the baby, whether they are hungry, whether they are sad or sleepy. And I had done some work on this before. And so this was, it was like this prior work and then realizing the problem at hand. And I realized, okay, so maybe I could combine the things I had done before this new challenge um, to potentially bring a solution. Um, as with most things in healthcare, you know, I, I thought I would do it in a shorter time, but it has become many years of work <laughs> because, uh, yeah, everything in healthcare takes time for, for good reason and for realistic reasons as well. Um, you know, humans are involved, um, clinical studies have to be done. You can't solve a healthcare problem in your bedroom. You have to actually build coalitions, work with doctors, you know, and so on and so forth. So, so it's, I usually say that if I knew the Herculean task I was embarking upon, I would probably have run away. Yeah, you're not <laughs> the I, first. I, yeah, I saw each small hill and I was like, okay, I'll climb this one and climb, climb, climb. And I kept seeing more, more and more ones opening up, basically. But, yeah, yeah, I hear that from a lot of social entrepreneurs and, and, and it makes me think of uh, something that I was going to say which is, you know, a lot of the interviews I've been doing on this podcast and for this series have been with people who are quote unquote empathy experts who've actually studied empathy, either, um, you know, behavioral psychology or neuroscience, or sometimes it's in the professional space where they're ethnographers. And I see uh, your work as sort of empathy adjacent. I think all social entrepreneurs that are doing work in service to humanity and the well-being of our planet or, or our fellow human beings is the work of purposeful empathy. So that's how I see your work as adjacent. And I'd love to do a little bit of a deep dive into your social purpose venture. So how you got started, some of the you know twists and turns. Where are you at now? What are some of your needs? What are some of your goals? How are you planning to scale? So just you know, want to hear more about um, about the organization? Yeah, totally. I'll, I'll try to cover uh, most of these questions. Uh, but you know, one of the first things I'll say is that, um, and, and this this ended up being a pro and a con at the same time. 
because I never started up trying to start a company. I kind of started a social venture. It was just a problem, a potential solution I had in mind, and a project that could be worked on at that moment. And it kept evolving from there. And so uh, it was a pro because it didn't allow me to really just pause and realize the gravity of what I was getting myself into. But it was a con in the sense that I made a lot of mistakes along the way and not like planning ahead enough and getting, only getting there and realizing that, oh, shit, I have to have done this and that and then, you know, cut time and, and so on. But all in all, um, you know, you know we've, I, I went from, first of all, working on this on my own to realizing that, oh, yes, there was something inside of here. And, and, and one of the very first things I did, I was still in Nigeria by this time, at, at this time, by the way, one of the first things I did was to look at doctors who were working on this problem, who had investigated it in their own research uh, versus asphyxia. And I went to their universities. I, I tried to schedule meetings, meetings with them and to speak with them, to pitch the, the idea to them that we could develop a cry-based diagnostic tool that will be so cheap because everybody has phones in their hands and it would cost little to nothing to make it available. And, and you know, I tried to explain to them the the physiology behind the baby's cry and why this was possible uh, because the cry is connected to the, to the central nervous system in newborns and, and because they don't have voluntary control over their cry uh, whatever is happening in the brain is reflected in the patterns of their cry and so and, and so this is a really like thankfully very successful conversations i got the first set of of clinical partners that i worked with um, to prove the concept to do a small study on a small number of patients to show that, that there were signs in the cry that could be leveraged to develop a really uh, robust um, uh, tool. Yeah. So let me just interrupt for a second because I, I think I have a bit of an advantage knowing your work from, from years ago. Anybody who's listening or watching, just to be sure that we're talking about the same thing, you developed a technology or were thinking about a technology where in the space of a n- newborn baby being born into the world, You'd hold up a phone, a cell phone, and the you would hear the baby's cry, and that would that signal would get analyzed some way somehow. Is that it? Exactly, and it would tell you if the baby was at risk of brain damage from birth asphyxia and other conditions that we are looking into now. So, so the, the that's essentially the core idea: uh, using a phone, take the cry as input, and let the the caregivers know if there is a problem. Um, and if, if there's probably an asphyxia, but two ways in which it has expanded is we've moved from not only smartphones to even custom devices we're working on now. Um, and we've also moved from just breast asphyxia to working on other neurological conditions as well that can be detected from the test. Uh, That's amazing. So you're working with neuroscientists right now. So is your PhD in neuroscience? Uh, no, my PhD is at the corner of computer science and biomedical engineering. So it's, it's the crossroads oh. of both. Uh, but, but of course, of course, like I work with neuro, um, neurologists, um, I work with neonatologists, uh, pediatric neurologists, uh, and so on as well. So it's all connected. So who's funding the research and who's funding the devices and who's funding the scaling? How's that all working? Yeah, yeah. So funding was actually a big problem for, for a long time. Um, you know, we were starting the project just alone, uh, meant that I was just trying to keep expenses and costs as low as possible. But at some point, when it was clear that to make progress, we needed to conduct clinical studies. Clinical studies means working with doctors um, to be able to collect data of actual patients over time, because 
the way this AI or machine learning systems work is that uh, to detect the problem, you need examples, you need um, data of patients that have the problem and patients that don't have the problem. And then, and then it's from this that the, the algorithm learns the patterns of anomalies and the patterns of healthiness and is able to use that for the future. And so to collect examples of babies that are normal and babies that had asphyxia, the only place to do that was in the hospital. Uh, but you know, you can't just walk into the hospital with a phone to collect that data. So that meant forming collaborations with physicians, um, applying for ethics approval, which is, which is a good thing that that's there because, because even though we need research to improve the patient, the lives of patients of the future, we shouldn't hurt the lives of patients of today when doing that. Um, you know, and, but that's a really long process. The ethics review process it could take a year at least or more. And, um, and so today we, we have uh, about six hospitals working with us here in Canada, in Nigeria, and in Brazil. Um, and so the, the idea of working with these hospitals is to get data from diverse locations, um, data from different geographies, so that we can be sure that whatever tool we develop is going to scale beyond just uh, one particular location. And so in terms of, uh, yeah, and so basically over time, you know, you know, the team has grown from just a one-man team to now about six or seven of us. Uh, who is funding us? We've been bootstrapping still for the most part with small grants from the government of Quebec. They, they were our very first um, investor, if I'll call it that. The, the very first dollar we got was from the government of Quebec and, and also the federal government of Canada as well now, from MIT um, in the US, um, from other foundations as well, like the Patrick McGovern Foundation. So, so we, we, we've been able to... Um, yeah, work so far with, with a pool of small grants from different partners who believe in us, who support us, and, and even Mila too have, have supported us as well in kind. And so, so that's helped us, yeah. And are you, seeing, are you seeing success? Are babies' lives being saved? Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, so we are still in, in the latter part of the R&D, I would say. Um, so COVID actually caused a halt in most of our clinical activities because understandably that was priority. Um, so so we, we, we did shut down for about six to seven months at a different site. Um, so so well, we are in, you know, in like 60% through the clinical studies. We're beginning to analyze the data we have now. And we are seeing that, yes, we can develop um, uh, because the idea of this now is to validate the prototype that was developed earlier. And we are seeing that we can maintain that performance we had in the original prototype. Um, so beyond this step, we'll be actually taking the tool and then um, using it in controlled clinical trials, much like the way vaccines are developed, where you prototype in the lab, test it, you know, develop it, and then they do trials with actual humans in a controlled way, though. Um, and so that will be the next step for us, uh, you know, before we can actually put it into everyday use. Because, uh, yeah, it's in the clinical space and there's all these steps that it has to take to be an approved medical device that can be uh, used safely. Yeah. Right. One of the ideas, and this is the fundraiser in me thinking, and, uh, you know, as a, as a mom who had a child, I have a very distinct memory of what the first sound that my baby made. It was like three little 
cat meows. That's the, the closest <laughs> thing I can describe it to you. It's like one, two, three, a little, little cat meow. I wonder whether or not it would be possible to tape that first sound and, you know, not sell that sound to the parents, but say, this is a gift we offer. Would you like to make a donation to your project? Like, I think there might be like uh, a, 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 an opportunity there, but we can talk about that offline. That's an interesting piece. <laughs> <laughs> you know how parents like to have their, you know, footprints and fingerprints and clay. Well, they could also have yeah, a little yeah. audio file. Um, so as you've been going along this journey as a social entrepreneur um, and, and you're, you know, collecting data, um, you know, working on trials, the ideas eventually to scale, um, I'd like to hear your thoughts about self-compassion and self-empathy. Because um, I, uh, you know, people who are on the front lines of humanitarian work or social work where there's, you're in a service provision kind of role, or in your case, you know, you're imagining, you know, for every extra day I spend developing this, like, you know, I'm not saving those X number of babies. Like there's an urgency by which you want to get this technology out there. How do you take care of yourself? And how do you kind of, you know, find your own, I don't know, self-care mechanism? Yeah, that's a very important um, issue, actually, because for, for many of the first few years, I was like working night and day, uh, or there was at least no boundary between night and day for me. It was just take breaks to eat and then try and get back to working on something, whether it was the actual, you know, algorithmic work, whether it was finding clinical partners, whether it was finding funding. There was always something to work on. And so it was, was just a, a circle around around. But what that led to was, you know, I would work intensely for like six, seven months. And then have a breakdown like for that three weeks or so. And breakdown, you know, meaning, you know, I just would wake up, but I couldn't work because I had exhausted my mental abilities. And then I needed to actually just stop working for like a significant time to recover again and be able to continue. And needless to say, that that was not healthy. And one thing I've, I'm getting better at doing in the last, uh, I'll say, one year plus and so is. It's really because there's a temptation, right? When you do, especially work that involves just staring at a computer and typing away, it's a temptation to feel like you can work anytime because the office is with you every time. And so it's really just now about drawing that line and saying at a certain time of the day, work is done. done. Do anything but work. <laughs> because I hope then, I'm. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. I didn't mean to cut off. Because it's going to be there tomorrow, the next day. Like it's not going anywhere. Too, right? I hope yeah. I'm the last of your to-do list today <laughs> on this Friday afternoon at 4:35 p.m. Oh, good. Oh, good. Um, I like I like to ask the question often um, on behalf of a younger generation coming up the pike. You know, there's so many uh, ways that they can develop their careers. And as you know, somebody who's trying to nudge them in a, in a direction of be of service to humanity, what recommendations and what benefits does it have, you know, do you see for young people to think about work as a social entrepreneur or something like that? Yeah, so, I mean, many ways to, 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 to go at this from, but one of the questions I would say is, you know, like a person has to be doing it because they want to do it 
um, doing social work or like working in social space because they want to do it. Because like with everything, the, there will always be hard times and those hard times are going to test you significantly. You know, and if you can, if you look, if those times come and you look around you and you cannot justify why you're here, it will make it even worse. It could make you go crazy or do something else, you know. So, so, so I'd say first, you know, it, it has to be something one wants to do. Um, it also has to be something, um, like, in terms of the destination, first of all, it has to be something you desire. But then it needs to be using your skills in a way that excites you as well. It needs to be drawing from something you already enjoy doing. Because uh, I could totally see myself, um, like, if I had gone to study medicine, I'd been a medical doctor, just not liking my day-to-day -day work, you know, mm -hmm. and always wondering what would have been like, you know, solving all those math problems. I was just going to say. into algorithms, <laughs> you know. But the fact that, and it's a gift too, I think, for me, just to be able to do what I like, like solve math, and easy to solve problems in the real world, like mm -hmm. healthcare, you know, and not just like solve math for the sake of, you know, academic purposes only. And so I think, like, if one could get to that point, that would be a very nice destination to be at. But doing something you like and love, and you're using that to solve a problem that you care about as well, too. Yeah. And how do you benefit? What's your personal benefit from the work you do? Uh, I'd, I'd say it's that. It's just that, like, that peace of mind, especially when those hard times come, and I look and I'm like, I cannot think of anything better, anything other that I would want to be spending my time and my skills on. And so when those hard times come, I just sleep it off. Nice. <laughs> you know, I wake up the next day and continue because like I would rather I would not be I would rather not be doing anything else basically. There's nothing else I'd rather be doing. Sounds like you have a real sense of purpose, which is beautiful. So as a last question, Charles, and thank you so much for your time. Um, I like to ask my guests at the end of the podcast a question about their personal life. Um, if you can think of a time when you were on the receiving end of empathy and what mm. that meant for you. Hmm. So, so there are two things I'll say. Um, and one is light and one is not very light. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, it's not very light-hearted, exactly. <laughs> um, and I'll start with the not very light-hearted one, so I can end the light-hearted one. Okay. okay. Um, and, and this is not exactly me receiving empathy, but in some ways it's like that too. And this is really about data and medical research. Um, in our work, for instance, we end up you know, working with cry samples, actual cry recordings of babies that were, were taken after they were born, before they were discharged from the hospital. And, and it's very often, it's, it, it's easy, especially in the computer world, to just see this as data, mm -hmm. as numbers, as statistics. And that happens to me all the time, I have to say too. You know, you just, it's, it's just the data you work on to solve this math problem. Um, but I remember one recent incident where it was almost like one of the babies spoke to me, mm. if I'll put it like that. And because and occasionally we would listen to the audio samples um, for like auditory analysis or, or to trace some issues. And so I was just listening to sort of 
samples or babies. Now, I, I saw that this baby, we had a birth recording, but we didn't have a discharge recording of this baby. And so I went to look in the question to see why that, why there was no discharge recording. And it was that this baby had died. And that just, and it wasn't the first time I was seeing that we had diseased patients in our, in our database. But for some reason, just listening to that audio and looking for the goodbye audio, like the one that says the baby is going home, and not finding that one, it's just like the moment that made me to pause. And it was almost as if the baby said to me, you know, you know, this, this, is, this was my first and last sound to the world, and I'm going, but please use it to help the babies that come in the future. And so that was a very, very, um, yeah, it made me really pause. And I see it, uh, <laughs> it's a very yeah, it's touching very, story. Yeah, yeah. So, so it was definitely one that, that stays with me. It wasn't the first time, but it was that particular baby, that particular moment was a special one. And I don't know why. So there's that, and then there's the more light-hearted one, which is, uh, which connects back to the beginning when you, you said, we met at the Solvay House, the Jean Solvay Foundation. And coming to Solvay for me was, was the first time I was living in a country outside of Nigeria. <laughs> I had never seen snow before and many other things. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember that that year, the snow took forever to come. <laughs> it was like, it knew I was there, it knew I was waiting. And all the Solvay <laughs> fellows, they knew that I was waiting for the snow too. I saw every morning, where's the snow, where's the snow? And then, and then it was the day the snow, um, that the first snow fell that year, 2015, like half of the residents of the house came to my door, knocking like, Charles, come and see. <laughs> and so, so that, was, that was very much fun. The fact that that experience was shared with everybody and, um, and everybody was anxious for me to, to get this snow experience. And it was, it was so much fun. It was nice. As you might know, snow is only nice the first time. Afterwards, uh, the winter gets. <laughs> <laughs> that is a fabulous story. Oh my gosh! And I'm so happy you said it in that order. I guess that's the Nor Nigerian storyteller in you that knows when to say what. Charles, um, I am so happy that we reconnected. Thank you for sharing your journey. I'm going to include lots of information in the description below about how people could learn more and get in touch with you to support the work that you do. Thank you for um, all of the math that you're doing uh, in service to saving lives and, um, and making a big impact in the world. So I really appreciate your time, Charles. Yeah, thank you, Anita. It was a pleasure as always. Take care. Mm -hmm. Thank you for joining. See you next time at Purposeful Empathy. What if you had access to your own council of coaches to help you break free from your thinking clutter, make an important decision, or liberate you from whatever's holding you back? At Grant Huron International, you get to choose the coach of your choice from any place, any time. Visit GrantHuronInternational.com and harness the power of on-demand coaching today.